I know what you're thinking. God, as Jamie comes up to preach today, burn like a fire in Jamie. Just, just make it short fire. <laughs> okay, don't you get me started. Don't you get me started. Okay. Do you know, we're in the Beatitudes, and I'm, I'm loving the Beatitudes. I know in, in a way it's tough. In a way, kind of, we've read it all before, but do you know what? That thought that God would burn like a fire in us, you know, by the time that's done, this is what we're going to look like. Because what is of us will have been burnt away. All of our own pride and our own issues and our own competitiveness and our own niggles and our own insecurities will have been singed and burnt. And we need that for the sake of the world. The world desperately needs to see Jesus, folks, and guess where? how he's going to see it, through you and I, through our words, through our actions, through our love, through our prayers, when we lay hands on the sick and they start being healed. It's exciting stuff, isn't it? I've really enjoyed looking at the Beatitudes, as I've said, and today we've got two to go, and then we're going to, don't don't think we're done yet, there's a whole lot more Sermon on the Mount to go. We're going to be here till Christmas. 2015. <laughs> no, not quite. We would, uh, if I did a verse a week, we'd be that long. Today we're looking at um, a peacemaking, and we're looking at persecution. And, and what, part of what I've enjoyed about the Beatitudes is perhaps it takes us to places we don't naturally, instinctively go. I mean, we don't talk about being poor in spirit much. Do we talk about mourning? Do we talk about meekness? Do we talk about hunger and thirsting after righteousness? I'm not sure. Do we talk about peace? I think we do. We do, because that's so crucial, isn't it? Do we talk about persecution? Actually, probably, if we're honest, we do tend to avoid that for obvious reasons. And that, the message through this stream really is that this, folks, is where the blessing is. The things that we read about here, this is where, these are heaven's priorities. Actually, if you want to know what the pinnacle of Christian maturity is, this is it. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. That's my favorite one. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. As we said, Jesus came to spark a revolution. Jesus came to turn things upside down. And this is what it looks like. A lot of material to get through this morning. So please don't slow me down. Or it'll be your own fault. Let's start with Beatitude number 7. Blessed are the peacemakers. The Amplified says, blessed... And then it explains what blessed means. He said, blessed are the makers and maintainers of peace. 
for they shall be called the sons of God. Wonderful. I'll be honest with you, this message has evolved over the week. It was very different by Friday night than it was, say, Wednesday lunchtime. And and I started with what I thought was a textbook exposition. So we, we started off looking at reconciliation. That's it, Josie. Reconciliation, girl. How God made peace with man through the blood of Jesus. Colossians 1.19 For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. It started there. And it ended with, with a detailed piece on what a peacemaker actually does. How he treats his enemies, how we're to be passively peaceful internally and yet actively seeking peace, and so on. But then as as I pondered during the week, as I observed what I saw before me, the message evolved and simplified a little bit. The peace process is still the same. It starts, number one, with a God has made peace possible through Jesus Christ. And then the second part of that is to be a peacemaker. First of all, you yourself must be at peace. And we'll talk about that a little bit. And then thirdly, once you've reached that point and you've become a peacemaker, then a peacemaker sows and produces the fruit of peace. In essence, it starts at peace with God and then the peace of God. And then that will lead to the fruit of peace. So, as I break that down, as I said, it's changed a little bit, simplified a little bit. Number one, God has made peace possible. To which I say this quite simply. Thank God for the gospel. Thank you, Lord, for the gospel. Isn't it great to know that God is not mad with us? That God has forgiven us. That God is For us. I mean, that's a fantastic revelation. That God is with us. That God is ever extending a hand of grace towards us. My word, how do you start a peace message other than right there? Here's a revelation for you. God is not your problem. I've watched all sorts of things happening this week. One of which is my kids running around singing that song, My Lighthouse. And there's a verse in there that says, the line that says, you are my peace. You are the peace in my troubled sea. And I've had that being sung round and round in my head all week. Isn't that wonderful? He is our peace in the troubled sea. I think you probably missed it last week, but at the end of the service, while ministry was still going on, Mark and Carol, I think it was, were playing, and they switched into my lighthouse, and Mark, Mark played a chilled, you know, Mark's pretty chill, guys, you know, playing a chill version of My Lighthouse. And you remember the action we had, the safety shore? I loved it. It was Reuben and Lucas and Olivia, and they were walking across the front as Mark was just playing it. Like this. You know, the God who carries us safe to shore. God is a peacemaker. He is a reconciler. The devil, however, is a troublemaker. So so while peace is greatly desired, unquestionably, actually for many, it is extremely elusive 
and for all of us it is frequently contested. You know, I don't know what that, that contesting looks like for you. It may be relational niggles. Maybe, maybe you don't have those, I don't know. Relational niggles, maybe it's bad news that just kind of stirs you up. Maybe it's unpleasant emails. Maybe it's tired, cranky kids. Maybe it's a guilty conscience. Maybe it's fear and anxiety. But these things come against us and they contest our peace. And there is no doubt where they come from because God is a peacemaker, but the enemy is a troublemaker. This is one of his favorite games. One of his most consistent tactics is to get under your skin so that he can steal your peace. John 10.10, 10, the thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But Jesus said, I have come that you might have life. Very different. You know, there's a verse that we quote often, isn't there? That, 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 that if we will pray, rejoice, pray, God will give us a peace that passes understanding. A supernatural peace that bypasses, surpasses our understanding. Well, the reason for that is in the realm of understanding... You're going to need that because peace is often under threat in that context. So that leads us on to the second point, which is that to be a peacemaker, you yourself need to be a peacemaker. Simple principle, you cannot give it if you do not have it. As a gem of a little verse, I quote from time to time, Job 22, 21 which is such a powerful, simple principle, which says, submit to God and be at peace with him. Pretty simple. And then it says, in this way, prosperity will come to you. What it means by prosperity is wholeness and a favor and an overflow, riches of body, soul, and spirit. And it's rooted in Submitting to him. If you are resisting, if you are fighting, if you are constantly challenging, you will never find peace. If there's any area in your life where you are resisting, you will never have peace in that area until you submit to God and out of that, peace will come. The Amplified says, acquaint now yourself with him. Agree with God and show yourself to be conformed to his will and be at peace. If you are fighting with everyone, it's probably an indicator that you are not at peace with yourself. If you are not at peace with yourself, it's probably an indicator that you are not at peace with God. And I I long for that. I long to walk in that. I long to be the person who can keep his sense of humour, as they say, when everyone else is losing theirs. And if you can do that, it shows that in your heart, you have peace. We're going back to Job 22, 21, and those two versions that I've read. That level of peace comes from submission, submit now to God, and relationship, acquaint now thyself with God. It comes from submission, and it comes from relationship. We've talked, haven't we, about how the Beatitudes are a progression of increasing maturity. And so peacemaking ties in with meekness. If I can stop resisting God, meekness is power under control, isn't it? Submitted, subjugated power. If I can stop resisting God, I can find peace on the inside. 
It ties in with purity on heart. Only one with a pure heart can make peace because by definition an impure heart is full of jealousy and anger and strife, the very things that resist peace. An impure heart is going to be both defensive and aggressive. And it also ties in with mercy. By the time you're a mercy giver, you've matured beyond the need for revenge and justification and vindication, tough stuff. And as a result of that, you can now stand in the gap as a peacemaker. Actually, without concern for any consequences that might come your way, and at that point, you can advocate for peace. And this, I think, is how it works. As you submit, as you grow close, the Holy Spirit then is liberated, released to work. Peace is, is the consequence of the work of the Spirit. And that is why, in Philippians 4, that's why it passes understanding, because it's a supernatural thing. So Galatians 5.22, we know well the fruit of the Spirit says, for the fruit of of the Spirit is peace. It's a fruit of the Spirit. Romans 5 verse 6 says, So letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death. But letting the Spirit control your mind leads to life and it leads to peace. Letting the Spirit control your thought life, your inner world. So actually, peacemaking is a strong sign of spiritual maturity. It takes maturity to subdue your ego to the point where you can listen to the still, small voice. As the amp said, agree with God. Show yourself to be conformed to his will. Your will subjugated, his will elevated. And that won't happen without the meekness, without the purity, without the mercy. Just conversely, just quickly, as a warning, the opposite of peacemaking, I've chosen the word agitation. The opposite, agitation, actually is an indicator of spiritual immaturity. In God's kingdom, it is blessed are the peacemakers. There is no blessing for the troublemaker. There is no blessing for the aggressor, for the gossip, for the critical spirit, for the nitpicker. Just read Proverbs. It has so much to say about that. My favourite is Proverbs 11.29, which says that he who troubles his own house will inherit the wind. Verse we had last week, James 4, verse 6. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. To be a peacemaker, first of all, you have to be at peace. That will only come when you lay it down and you let him in. Very simple. So, what then does a peacemaker do? Again, in the Amplified, blessed are the makers and maintainers of peace, for they shall be called the sons of God. I love uh, 1 Peter 3, passage there. Actually, the whole chapter is great, but verses 10 and 11, which is a quote from Psalm 34. And it says, whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. 
Seek means to look for, to hunt for. Pursue means to go after it, even though it might be elusive. In the message, Peterson says, run after peace for all your worth. I also love James 3, verse 18, which says, those who are peacemakers will plant seeds of peace and ripe, reap a harvest of righteousness. What do you want to, what, what do you want to reap, folks? Folks, we want, we want to reap a harvest of righteousness. If we do, we sow, we sow seeds of peace. So as a Christ follower, as one desiring to be like Jesus, we must seek, we must pursue peace, and we sow seeds of peace. Generously, consistently, even when it's contested the most. Is, is this not why Jesus talks about turning the other cheek? He talks about going the extra mile. He talks about loving your enemies. He talks about praying for those who persecute you. Sowing seeds of peace, even when it's contested the most. Sowing seeds of peace in your relationships, in your marriage, in your home, in your teams, in your church. Even, as Jesus spells out, with your enemies. And I'd love to press into how we do that and some of the nuts and bolts of that, but we didn't have time. But for me, this is the spirit of the Beatitudes. It's not easy to be a peacemaker, but the reward is great for those who are. And so what is the reward? As we read here, it says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. To which half of you go, yay, and the other half of you, probably slightly more than half, I'm honest, go, oh, okay. Here's a little tweet for you that I found which made me smile. If women can be called sons of God, men can't complain about being called the bride of Christ. So it does work both ways. It does include us all. We can all be sons of God, okay. Why are peacemakers blessed? Because they are so utterly unlike everyone else. They stand out because they are children of God. I taught the Holy Spirit, Alpha Holy Spirit stuff this week. And there's a lovely little Nicky Gumbel line in there that says, essentially says this, that a Christian adopted as a child, as a son, is given the family name. Christian. They're given the family name and following on from that, they can expect to receive the family likeness by the power of the Holy Spirit. And a peacemaker will gain a reputation for being godly. For displaying the character of God the Father. You know, five times he's called the God of peace. We'll gain a reputation for being godly if we follow the example of Jesus, who the Bible calls the Prince of Peace, and if we will produce the fruit of the Spirit of Peace. And the last beatitude, some people divide this one into two, they're very similar. It's blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. How ironic that this comes after peacemaking, right? John Stott said, Every Christian is to be a peacemaker, and every Christian 
is to expect opposition. Those who hunger for righteousness will suffer for the righteousness they crave. We should not be surprised if anti-Christian hostility increases, rather be surprised if it does not. You know, by the time you've reached here, at the end of the list of Beatitudes, the top of the ladder on that slide, by the time you've reached that, you have reached, attained the pinnacle of maturity. By this point, you are probably as close to Jesus as you're likely to get this side of heaven. And once you've reached that point, Jesus says, don't expect fanfares. Don't expect the angel chorus. Don't forget, expect the world to fall at your feet in awe. Expect to be persecuted. And I think it's unexpected, at least for me, that the, the highlight, the place of greatest blessing and favour and grace and anointing is described as this place of persecution. I pondered this, and I, I, I think it would be fair to say my experience of persecution actually is quite limited. Part of me is ashamed to say that. Part of me is actually quite relieved to say that. You know what I mean. But in reality, where we live actually right now, we don't experience much of it, relatively. Certainly when we measure it against the rest of the world. Having said that, the bad news is we can only expect it to go in one direction from here, and that is worse. Jesus said, Matthew 10, 34, this is Jesus who is characterized by peace, who is the peacemaker, said, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. In other words, as an inevitable consequence of, of his coming, there would be conflict. There would be opposition, but retaliation would be inevitable. I don't think I could do justice to this at all without talking about persecution on a world scale. I'm going to read you some figures. There's been some dispute about the accuracy of these figures, but it makes a point. According to the Centre for the Study of Global Christianity, 100,000 Christians have died for their faith each year in the last decade. 100,000 Christians have died for their faith each year in the last decade. And the dispute is whether they died for being Christians or it happened that they were Christians in the various countries that, that, that Christians and, and people are being attacked. So that works out to 11 Christians martyred for their faith every hour for the last 10 years. According to Open Doors, the top five nations or probably the bottom five nations, in terms of persecution. At the top of this is North Korea, then Saudi Arabia, number three is Afghanistan, gulp, number four is Iraq, and number five is Somalia. Here's a, a quote from Open Doors. There are many reasons Christians are persecuted in places like Colombia and Central Asian republics. Active Christians get into trouble for simply being too honest in a hotbed of greed and exploitation. In Eritrea and North Korea, Christians are sacrificed on the altar of totalitarian communist ideology. Elsewhere, there are other causes, from antagonism between tribes to radical secularism to, tragically, opposition from other forms of Christianity. 
In recent years, it has been the rise of Islamism, which has led to the most persecution. In 23 of the top 30 countries on the world watch list, Islamists, those who want to centre all political and social life around Sharia Islam, are persecuting the church. So for many people in the world, Jesus' words here are very reassuring. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. It's not what I was expecting to come next. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So, swinging that back into our context, I just want to make one thing straight. I want to clarify what persecution is and what persecution isn't. Okay? Persecution is not people giving individual Christians a hard time because they are obnoxious. Because they are fanatic, of oh, a lovely list here, because they are fanatical, objectionable, bigoted, self-righteous, pompous, superior, arrogant, pushy, insensitive, or just plain weird. <laughs> that, folks, is not persecution. If we are homophobic, it isn't persecution, it's deserved. If it's because the Spirit calls us to stand up for God's truth in a Christ-like way, then it's persecution. And there is a difference. So 2 Timothy 3 verse 12. Yes, and everyone, say after me, everyone. Nudge your person on the lip next to you and say, especially you. <laughs> and everyone who wants to live a godly life, say that means me, in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Reality. Acts 5 verse 41. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. I love that. So that's what persecution isn't. What is persecution? Jesus explains here essentially, persecution will come because of righteousness and because of me. Righteousness is the way of life embodied in Jesus. Embodied in what he did and in what he taught. And if we want to be ambassadors for Christ, which we do, if we want to open our mouths in his name, which I trust we do, then we really need, do need to make sure that we read the Sermon on the Mount first. There's a lot of banner-waving that goes on in Jesus' name that does not impress Jesus at all. What persecution is, persecution is a clash between two irreconcilable value systems. Persecution is demonically induced by the enemy of the gospel to oppose the saints of God. There is a clear agenda in play. We quote it often, Ephesians 6, 10 through 13. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, rulers of darkness, wickedness in high places. 
And then it talks about standing firm. It talks about taking hold of the armor because this is going to come our way. Sadly, the enemy uses people. The enemy uses groups of people to oppose God's kingdom. Sometimes it gets personal. That's what makes it the most painful is that God, that the enemy who always uses people as that instrument of persecution sometimes uses the people closest to you. And what Satan is doing is he's, he's using and working people's jealousies and biases and fears. Sometimes it can turn nasty. And I think what we're facing today, and the persecution comes because of righteousness, persecution comes because of me, because you are my disciples, because you're intentionally, outwardly following me. But if, if it's because of righteousness, what we're facing today actually is that righteousness scares the unrighteous. What righteousness does is it exposes them to condemnation and to sin consciousness. Actually, we have an entire culture working against righteousness. People don't want to be morally accountable. And so they oppose Christians. And so they oppose Christianity. And so they oppose church. But actually, and Jesus made it clear, really, they're opposing Jesus. When we read into Timothy's lessons, we, he taught letters, he talks about the spirit of Antichrist. And the spirit of Antichrist, as we accelerate into the end times, is on the increase in its work. And so we shouldn't be surprised. In fact, Jesus said here, we should rejoice. If we're getting persecuted, and I mean really persecuted, that probably means that we're getting somewhere. It probably means that we've been noticed. I love that line, and this is a bit of a Jamie paraphrase. Jesus I know, Paul I know, but who the heck are you? I, I quite want this church to attract the enemy's attention. I'm not being ridiculous about that, but surely it means that we're actually on the right track, does it not? Here's a quote I, I found this week that kind of made me chuckle or something. Perhaps if you're not being persecuted, you're a stranger in your own kingdom. Ouch. Okay, let's move on. <laughs> so what do we do with persecution? What do we do with it? John Stott, again. How did Jesus expect his disciples to react under persecution? We are not to retaliate like an unbeliever, nor to sulk like a child, nor to lick our wounds in self-pity, nor just to grin and bear it like a stoic, lest still pretend to enjoy it like a masochist. Instead, we are to rejoice and be glad. Because actually, persecution is a crown of honour. Yes, it hurts. But really, the problem is with Jesus and not with you. And there's something powerful as we keep our attitude right to our persecutors. Inside, we grow mature. And inside, we grow strong. Today, we had the pleasure and privilege of waving Mary off as she set off on her journey to the work God has for her in China. And it reminded me of a line, a little story I heard told once by a Chinese pastor who had been speaking 
at a conference in the United States. And at the end of the conference, and he'd been telling all about the, you know, what it's like in the Chinese underground church, and how they've been persecuted and thrown in prison over the years. The U.S. host pulled them out and said, look, we'd love to pray for you. And he started to pray, you know, God, you know, take this persecution away. God, ease their pain. And he said, stop. Whatever you do, don't pray that the persecution goes away. Because if the persecution stops, then our fire will die. The message says, you're blessed when your commitment to God provokes persecution. The persecution drives you even deeper into God's kingdom. Nothing purifies the church. Nothing strengthens or matures or sharpens it more than persecution. I read something this week that was a really interesting perspective shift, and it was talking about how the North Korean Christians, God bless them, how they pray for the church. In this article, it was in the US and in South Korea. And there was an amazing little flip. And the North Korean Christians pray for us because they feel we are persecuted by our prosperity and it distances us from God. And their prayer for us is just that we will remain faithful to the Lord. They're number one on the list, folks. I think they're well within their right to speak into our situation. So then it comes to the reward. It says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. R.T. Kendall says, the kingdom of heaven is brought down to us with an amazing sense of reality. Heaven comes down. God stoops down to touch those who are persecuted. I don't know if you're anything like me. Many times I've played in my mind, what would I be like if the gun was pointed to my head? And a renunciation of my faith was required. What would I be like? And I don't like dreaming that dream. I don't like dream thinking those thoughts. But I tell you what, I'm convinced that there's something that happens in that moment. I think there's a closeness, there's a reality, there's an anointing, there's a power that comes on you in that moment that gives you a supernatural strength to get through. Why is it that so many people who are persecuted, who are thrown in jail, who are bullied and, and oppressed, they, so many of them go back in? They're thinking, you're crazy, go, and they go back in. Think about the, the situation of Stephen, in Acts chapter 6, and the anointing on him. You know, the extraordinary strength and wisdom and grace and power that hallmarked him. You know, they said, remember in the Old Testament, Moses' face shone with the glory of God. They said that Stephen's face shone. And at the end of his life, Stephen had the privilege of being allowed to see heaven opening before his eyes. Blessed are the persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. As you know, salvation is free, praise God. The maturity costs. The anointing costs. And the price is our submission. The price is our consecration. And the price is persecution. And if we want what Jesus had, we must do what Jesus did. That is why so often it talks through the New Testament about sharing in Christ's suffering. So Matthew 5, verse 11 now, it says, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. There's actually a second reward. 
says, For great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. For the persecuted, there is a heavenly reward. We don't talk about heavenly reward often, and I'm just going to touch on it today. The Bible makes it clear that as a believer, our works will be judged. One day we will stand before Jesus and give an account of every good thing we say. It says we will give an account of every idle word we speak, if you remember. In essence, there are two end-time judgments. The first one is the great white throne judgment. That is when the Lamb's book of life comes out and the ones who are in it, covered with the blood, will go through to glory and the others, sadly, will not. Praise God. We're exempt from that judgment because of what Jesus has done. We are at peace with God. But the second one is, is what scholars call the beamer seat of Christ. This is where a Christian will be rewarded for his faithfulness and for his service. 1 Corinthians 3, it talks about this, and it divides our work essentially into two categories. On the one side, gold and silver and precious stones. On the other side, wood, hay and straw. The sense is when the fire comes, what's going to burn and what's going to stay? And the strong implication out of that is that essentially the works of the flesh are of no value. What God is looking for from us is the work of the Spirit. So works of the flesh will be judged, but works of the Spirit will be rewarded. And here we are told, right here, that when you are persecuted because of Jesus, you will receive a great reward in heaven. And so, even though it's hard, we should rejoice and be glad. Because the martyred will, for example, they will receive a great crown of honour. And I'm going to be there that day, and I'm going to be cheering. Amen. Don't know about you. Amen. So let's wrap this up then. Beatitudes describe what it means to be like Jesus. That's what we want, isn't it? That's what we talk about. This is what it looks like to be like Jesus. This is how it is to walk with the Holy Spirit. Do you want to have the Father's heart? This is it. And I think it's thrilling to think that we could actually be like this. But it's also intimidating for me when I realise how far I am from it. When I thought about how we should finish today, I thought as we're wrapping up a, a mini part of a series, that I think it would be good to pray a prayer of consecration. So if you trust me, I've got a prayer going up on the screen. Safe, I promise. And I'm going to invite you to stand. And I've described this as a prayer of invitation. And I'm going to invite you to pray this prayer with me. So would you mind standing? You've got to trust me now. Okay, can you see it okay? Good. Okay, I'll read together. Ready. Lord, I want to be like Jesus. I want Christ to be formed in me. I want the Holy Spirit to be unhindered in me. I want you to be pleased with me. Jesus, thank you that you died for me to secure my salvation, purchase my freedom, win for me peace, to begin my journey of sanctification. Holy Spirit, 
I invite you to do your work in me, to melt me, mold me, bend me, break me if necessary, so that you can have your way in me. Father, please make me like Jesus. Break my heart for what breaks yours. Shift my priorities, shape my values, change my motivations. Lord, that I might see your kingdom come in me, in my home, in my church, in my world, for your glory, for your honour, and your fame. Amen. Is that a good prayer or what? And Lord, so now as we finish this message, I just pray, Lord, for everyone gathered here today. And Lord, we do mean those words. We do want to be like Jesus. We do want to be open to your spirit. We do want to walk close with you. And Lord, this is challenging stuff. We're not always peacemakers. Sometimes we run when there's a threat of persecution. But Lord, we're here. We're ready. And we're saying, Lord, whatever you need to do in us, come do it. And now, Lord, as we take just a few minutes to respond this morning, I just pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come and settle on us. That you would come and stir within us. And if there's anything that needs to be challenged, if there's anything that needs to be changed, if there's anything that needs to be repented, Lord, that you come and do it. Lord, we just invite you, Holy Spirit, come in the next few minutes. Come have your way in us. In Jesus' name.